You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, common sense is a real lost art in this era, but this is where you're going to find it here at the conservative conscience. And welcome back. It is Wednesday, August the 15th in Absurdistan, where we are now a transgender masochist Somali immigration fraud committing candidate who also engaged in bigamy and married her brother. Yes, we're going to touch on all that today um, following this crazy election night, sleepy election night, where really only the left is engaged because our side doesn't need to engage in anything because we have our hot takes, our political morphine, our Fox News, and after all, Trump is president, so we won. Well, even though the country is going to hell in a handbasket. And most of that is not even Trump's fault. But, you know, as we've been warning on this show since forever, there are so many areas we need to fight on the issues one by one. In primaries, in elections, not just presidential elections. The courts. The personnel battles and the agencies. Yet we're so complacent, we don't realize that the culture is getting worse, the immigration stuff is getting worse, the transgender insanity is getting worse. And we're going to discuss a lot of this today, one by one, how, once again, conservatives, so to speak, are on the hook for almost like we have to own the status quo. We have to own being in power, even though almost nothing is changing. And the status quo that people are upset with, we should be railing against it because this is not our system of government. This is not what we want. It's all consumed by the debate over Trump's personality. But as you well know, I wanted Ted Cruz to be president. But even if Ted Cruz would have won, in my view, not that much more would have changed. Because we're not doing this right. We need a new party, a new movement to combat what the left is doing in a serious way. And until we do it, every time we, so to speak, really meaning just Republicans, and I don't consider myself a Republican, win, wins elections, it's just going to jazz up the other side as if we're implementing our policies. Yet, we're not implementing them, so we're not converting people in the middle that would see the veracity of our policies. And then our base is left in this funny middle ground where they're kind of disappointed. They know that we're losing the country. But on the other hand, you know, officially, they have their guy in power, so they're not upset. So they're not, they're not motivated by the anti but they're not motivated to go out and fight the status quo. And that's where you see the complacency. So in order to unpack all of this and tie in as many, you know, as much of the news of the day, the news of the day that I want to talk about that I think is more important than most of the news of the day you're going to talk about. Um, 
I want to talk about last night's elections. So, you know, you had several states, but, you know, the main elections were in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Once again, tremendously lopsided turnout. Massive Democrat turnout. Pretty lackluster Republican turnout. And again, as we spoke about last week, there's Trump voters who aren't traditional Republicans. And nowhere was this more evident than Minnesota. If you remember, a blue state, Minnesota, Trump came a hairline away from winning Minnesota. There were counties there that he swung by 20, 25 points relative to the previous presidential election. <clears throat> and yet, <clears throat> all evidence points to the fact that they've abandoned the Republican Party or they're just not voting. Once again, every Republican on the ballot was a puke in the House. In the Senate, we had a potential for a more exciting candidate in um, Nicholson, but we got the establishment candidate winning the Wisconsin Senate primary, which the truth is it won't matter anyway because Tammy Baldwin will win anyway. Which brings me to my next point. You know, I remember when Tammy Baldwin, oh, the first lesbian senator, made a big deal. You know, it sent chills down our spine to think someone like her could win. And now she's considered a conservative Democrat. So what did we have last night? We had a transgender win in Vermont. Now, I don't know what that means. Um, let, let, let me ask you a question. If I run as a candidate and I publicly not just do this, but proclaim myself, identify myself, identify myself with this act of cutting my legs off, I amputate my legs, which, as I've said before, legs and arms, amputating them are less systemically damaging and mutilating to your core of your body than cutting your plumbing off. But I cut my legs off, and I say, I identify as a mermaid. You know, and I go around campaigning in a, you know, pool of water with legs cut off. Would I win? Would anyone vote for me? Yet we live in a society where we are so inundated with technology that we that they they could take the most insane concepts, give it a almost legal sounding codification, LGBTQ, Q, Q, G, you know, and 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 just inundate you that, that you think it's normal. Oh, transitioning, uh, sex uh, reassignment, uh, transgender. Oh, oh okay, That's, and and it becomes normal. So we got that. Then we got this Somali woman winning Keith Ellison's seat. Now, we always knew a radical Democrat would take over that seat no matter what. But this is a woman that, first of all, she's an Islamo-Nazi. Pure Hamas. You know, again, this is not a matter of someone being Muslim. I mean, we're not electing Zudi Jassers, you know, who would be a patriot. This is, I mean, all these people are hooked in with the Muslim Brotherhood Hamas. She engaged in bigamy. She married her brother as a way of committing immigration fraud. In my view, um, she should actually be deported because that's a deportable offense. I'm trying to look into that now to see, you know, see any angle on that. But this is a very dangerous woman. She was in the state legislature beforehand because this is what happens, and I want to get to this in a minute, when you import the Middle East and colonize areas with Somalis, just the most radical individuals, the most divorced from our American values, well, then they start 
you know, it's, it's becoming like Europe now. This is a very ominous sign that we're now electing radical Islamist immigrants, not Zudi Jasser types, that we're, we're, we're becoming like Europe where now we have secondary, what I call the secondary Middle East, where it's now a breeding ground in America itself, just like it is in Europe, and we're now electing these type of politicians. So, um, you know, she was born in Ras Kabad, Somalia, 1982. Not sure when she came over here. Um, they came over in 1995. That's when we started bringing them in. And, um, yeah. Really... Really um, bizarre stuff. Really bizarre stuff. In 2002, at age 19, she began a relationship with this Ahmed Hersey guy. Um, and they had three children together. Then they separated in 2008. And then in 2009, Omar married this um, Elmi guy. And... Um, it's believed to be, you know, our buddies at Paraline and at PJ Media. We'll link to the articles and show notes. There's, there's something to investigate there. There's reason to believe that she committed immigration fraud, and she should be ineligible for running. But um, she was one of four individuals in the Minnesota House to vote against punishing female genital mutilation. I mean, and this is this is what happens when we don't have a movement in a party that litigates the case. I don't mean literally in court. I mean in the public opinion that we don't actually make this case. This is what we're doing. Because even in blue districts, I can't imagine, maybe you'll roll your eyes at me like, no, they've already gone, become that radical, but some blue districts... I can't imagine we're already there. By the way, a lot of this has been confirmed by um, her Democrat opponent in the primary. But no one wants to listen. Because when you're a protected class, you can do no wrong. So this is what we have going on in the elections now. We're getting crushed. We're getting radicals beyond anyone's imagination winning. Horrible Republicans winning. Because we don't have a focused conservative movement. And I want to focus on two issues today. The case of Jack Phillips and another bake the darn cake, but an even worse case. And some immigration trends continuing on our our discussion on importing the third world, and in this case the Islamist world, from the Middle East, to demonstrate a thesis here. That... While our base thinks we're in power, we're really not in power. We're rearranging the deck on a couple of issues here and there, but fundamentally, the issues that we're not changing, they're getting worse. The same way it's gotten this bad until now, it's getting worse. The Democrats are shameless, indefatigable, energetic. They're everywhere. They don't stop. So even when they're supposedly out of power, they're in power. And even when we're in power, we're really out of power because we don't have a party. 
But unfortunately, our voters are complacent. Let me start off by reiterating a point I made over and over again in the lead-up to the November 2016 elections, when a lot of conservatives, especially those that kind of work in conservative politics, were troubled by Trump's personality, some of his infidelity, different things he did in life. It was a concern, who is this guy? Will he be like a Democrat? Um, you know, Do you vote for him? Oh, but I don't want Hillary to win. And I made the case that nobody else was making, which really served as almost the foundation of what would become the general message of the conservative conscience and our writings at Conservative Review and, and our goals at, at Conservative Review and CRTV more broadly. And that is, it's not a binary choice of who you're going to cast the ballot, Hillary or Trump. There's many more elections, so to speak. And I pointed out at the time, let's say you get a presidential candidate that you know, gets the Republican nomination and you really don't like the guy. That's not the end of the story. There's many more options. What about all of the congressional candidates, the state legislative candidates? Where's the movement to focus on those? Gubernatorial candidates. And then as it relates to the president and Congress, I made the point that the die is not cast the minute you win an election or lose an election. It's the equivalent of, in football, one side recovering possession of the ball. But does that mean right away you render seven points? Ben, Seven points on the score? No. It starts then, and you have many opportunities to block and tackle if you're on defense or if you supposedly have the ball to actually score a touchdown or a field goal. And the problem is it's so we have a lazy movement and a lazy professional movement and leadership that likes to place everything into the hearts and, and hands of one guy every four years, and it all depends on that, and every midterm or presidential election is the most important election of our lifetime. We're going to die if we lose, and we're going to go to the promised land if we win. And I always said it's, it's just not like that. Generally speaking, because of 100 years of what progressives have ratcheted and set time bombs in our culture, the courts, the bureaucracies, the policies themselves – obviously the media, everything else, by default, unless you do certain things, they're going to win anyway, even if they didn't win the election. And certainly you guys see this every day in the courts. And I pointed out at the time that this is when it starts. There's something greater than your vote for president or even Congress and Senate, whatever, and that's your vote on the issues. If collectively we had thousands of people energized and engaged on the issues we promote here on this show. We had them focused on calling. I, I've said this before. Uh, calls into your members of Congress are more impactful than voting because it's a smaller pool and they really do take them seriously. The problem is we're asleep at the switch. This was very evident we saw in um, when we marshaled that opposition to John Boehner as speaker. You see the success every once in a while we could do this. And I pointed out that you know Trump did turn out in my mind to be on, in, in general better than I thought he would be and more receptive to our message. But we don't get in his face. We, 
it's not like, oh my gosh, it all depends on the election. No, it all depends on every day if you're a conservative activist, if you're a Republican official, if you're a conservative media figure focusing on the real policies that matter on every on any given day and the personnel that matters and the candidates that matter. You know, our, our, our young uh, star here at Conservative Review, Chris Pandelfo, it was his job to focus on the midterm elections, and he was lamenting to me, no one's focusing on it. And I was like, yeah, welcome to the club. Nobody cares. And this is the problem. I warned during the whole Trump era, I, I warned like, dude, we're losing every single primary. You realize that. Even if you supported Trump over Cruz, you understand the candidates you're getting aren't, aren't Trumpian. They're the same old crap. And that's true this cycle too, and it'll be true next cycle. Certainly next cycle where it's Trump's back on the ballot, it's all going to be about that. We're going to continue doing the same things. We don't realize it. The left's engaged. Our side's not. Now, here's the difference. You might say, well, our side was engaged you know, when we were out of power. You know, It's always the anti being energized. But the difference is that the left was actually implementing their policies. So at least they got their policies. And they implement it even when they're not in power. I want to give you two amazing examples of this. Of how we're like Leon Lett in the 1993 Super Bowl dancing before we have the ball in the end zone when we don't have the ball in the end zone. And indeed it gets stripped from us. Where we think we have a victory and we don't have a victory. And then it's almost like we elicit opposition because of the perception that we have a victory. So it's enough to quell the passion of our base to just go insane that we've become an illegal alien islamic transgender hellhole in this country yet we're asleep at the switch but yet the other side perceives that they're not getting their policies that we're really implementing ours so they're engaged and then because of all the garbage in the soap opera the middle is deserting us this is the nightmare we are facing So here, so the first thing I want to talk about is the Colorado civil rights case, Jack Phillips. And I, I want to say just from the get-go, I am not doing this to gloat. I'm not doing this to say, see, I told you so. I'm saying this to wake us all up from our slumber. See, you can't win an issue if you don't fight, right? You can't change the stat status quo if you don't fight. But you can't fight, and you won't fight, if you think you already won. If you don't recognize what the status quo is. See, because we have a lazy, grifting, phony conservative movement that doesn't want to do the hard work on the policies and the personnel and the strategies to actually fight issue by issue, it's a lot easier to deem yourself as having climbed Mount Everest than actually climbing Mount Everest. That's a very hard thing to do. So you know, it's a lot easier to say, well, no, I already did it. I'm, I'm on top of the mountain. It's almost as if conservatives are transgender themselves. You know, like people who hallucinate and think that their X chromosome is really a, that their, their um, Y chromosome is really an X chromosome. We think that we have a conservative regime in when we really don't. We're really not implementing our policies. 
and the left is winning even with us in power on the most insane things that should that would shock the consciousness of any American a few years ago and should shock the consciousness of our side now, but we're asleep at the switch. Jack Phillips is being hit with a complaint by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission for declining to bake a cake for what is evidently a new thing, a coming out ceremony for transitioning from male to female. Now, it's kind of interesting. Evidently, we don't, it's not a thing to bake cakes, um, celebratory cakes, when you amputate another limb or perceive or hallucinate about amputating such a limb. But if you cut your balls off, you, or perceive, or hallucinate about doing, or desire to do it, or think you did it, um, think you changed your chromosomes, we have a um, celebratory cake. So the Civil Rights Commission ruled, now it's not a ruling, but the it, preliminary motion sent a, a letter to Jack Phillips and said, we think we, we have probable, probable cause that you violated civil rights law in Colorado, and you should bake the damn cake. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Two months after the Supreme Court opinion where this guy officially, he did win as a plaintiff, as an individual plaintiff, won a Supreme Court victory in the exact same type of case, here we have them coming back for more. What did I tell you? When you had the thumbsuckers, David French, and all these National Review people that wrote 10 articles explaining what a beautiful victory this was from Anthony Kennedy. And we said, you look at the plain language, he explicitly said that in 99% of all other cases, you're going to have to bake the damn cake. It's just here they were rude and kind of bigoted and uneven in their application, so they ruled with Jack Phillips. But as the ACLU lawyer rightfully said at the time, that you know under this opinion, the same plaintiffs could come back in the same to, to Jack Phillips in the same bakery and ask nicely for a cake, and as long as... Um, you know, the Civil Rights Commission or no one else in the in the process said anything, you know, anti-Christian, but just said you have to bake it for me, they would have to bake it. And indeed, we pointed out in our writings in the ensuing two months, there was a case, a judge in a state judge in Arizona, there's a federal judge in Philadelphia that cited masterpiece to rule in similar cases. Um in Arizona, it was a similar to, you know, demanding that an artist um, service a gay wedding with their paraphernalia. It wasn't a cake. It was other stuff. Um, And in in, uh, Philadelphia, to force a Catholic adoption agency to, um, of no fault of their own, place kids with a creepy-deepy situation rather than a normal, healthy mother and father. I'm wondering where these people are now. Now, I don't say this just to shame them. I say this because, again, there's a problem here. It's not just like a semantic debate. Oh, did we win the case? Is this a good ruling? Is this not? You know, you could have a scholarly debate on that. That's not the point. The point is that this is vintage conservatism circa 2018. You have the most absurd, damaging things. No property rights. No 
religious liberty emanating from the left. And in this case, it's not even religious liberty. It's insanity. Bake a cake for someone cutting their balls off? What? Putting property and religious liberty rights aside, I mean, we've lost our nation if this is where we're at. But I, war I warned, I said, this is not just a semantic debate. What I'm saying here is that, dude, we're not winning this. We're, in fact, losing it. This case explicitly swings against us in 99% of other cases. And if you don't strip the courts of jurisdiction, if you don't go ahead in all state legislatures where we have control and in Congress codify civil rights-style religious liberty legislation – Barring any policies coercing someone against their conscience to service something, whether it's an organization, whether it's a private business, we lost the founding of this country. And yet these guys were sitting and dancing in the end zone, but while not being in the end zone, saying, oh, we want religious liberty. Great, the courts are protecting us. We don't have to do anything. No, you have to fight. We didn't win the issue. It's not that easy just having a Supreme Court case. And now I'm proven right. And putting aside the legality and the Constitution and the courts aside for a minute, just the culture and policy of this, look at how radical of a victory the left wins, even when we're supposedly in power. In the courts, in the states where they have control. And yet, our side is just so busy focused on the crap in conservative media these days that we, we're not even upset about it. We're not even energized about it. It's the worst case scenario. The left's winning on policy, but we officially are viewed as having possession of the ball, so our side is kind of satisfied, so to speak, and the left is energized as hell, and this is where the electoral disaster is going to come from. I can only warn until I'm blue in the face. Again, the perception that we're implementing our policies, but really the left is continuing to win their policies, but they have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, pun intended, where they get their policies, but they don't get the liability of being in power in this era of juiced up political social media where you're always at an advantage when you're out of power electorally. You know, I'm just tweeting right now as, as I'm talking here. Um, you know, the media is going nuts over. LGBTQ candidates are racking up unprecedented gains across the country. So I just tweeted, who's the Q? I'd love to know, who, who's the Q candidate? Unbelievable. I mean, that, that's the lesson of what's going on. But there's another lesson I want to move on to. And that's to pick up our discussion from immigration, but tied into something that I'm the only one with this message. But it is so important because it's the linchpin of immigration, national security, homeland security, foreign policy, military viability, national defense, and really the budget. It's everything if we had the proper message and policy on this. And that is... Rather than fighting and getting our soldiers killed in Afghanistan, 
in Syria, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Niger, in Chad, in Sudan, Marituana, Mali, and God knows who, where else. Refereeing Islamic civil wars with no aim and no mission and no understanding of why we're there, what we're doing, what we hope to gain on behalf of whom we plan to hold ground in what sustainable way. Because we have these wars and deplete our resources and resolve and get our soldiers killed and spend trillions of dollars, we then feel guilty and we bring the people from those both sides of the civil war to our shores. We put our boots on their shores and we bring their boots on our shores. I have an article out today explaining the insanity of what's going on in Afghanistan while tying it into my new research. It took me a long time to put this together, a new chart. I just have the total numbers of 47 predominantly Muslim countries, how much immigration we've taken in from 2001. Now we have 2017 and data from the first quarter, first three months of 2018. We've brought in 2.2 million individuals from predominantly Muslim countries since 9-11. Since 9-11. Our response to 9-11 was ratcheting up immigration from these countries so they could come here, have compounds in New Mexico promoting jihad, financing all the terror and operations that we're fighting overseas, but they finance it from our shores. Now have these candidates, have them produce candidates and run for Congress and actually sit in Congress. When really we could be focused on domestic counterterrorism that doesn't cost us anything to shut down the Muslim Brotherhood networks and these radical imams engaging in treason, deport those engaging in subversion, and stop importing this new stuff. Now, it's perceived that Trump has stopped this, right? Think again. We've brought in, in 2017, by my count, 167,000 from these countries. And by the way, these are green cards. If you count the um, foreign students, student visas from these countries, they often stay indefinitely. That's like... Another 150 to 170,000. It's hard to get an exact number. But I counted up these 47 predominantly Muslim countries. And these are countries that I've identified that have a majority Muslim population. There's many other countries, people don't realize Africa has fallen to Islam. Um, the entire Western Horn, down into Central Africa. But, I mean, there's plenty of other countries that have 10, 20, 30, 35% Muslim populations where we take at least some degree of immigration from. I didn't even include them. I mean, it's, it's, it's so far down that even the Central African Republic is 10% Muslim. But um, in the year 2017, we brought in 167,035 from these Countries, and since 9-11, 2,230,658 to be exact. And from Afghanistan, we've now quadrupled our immigration. Almost 20,000 Afghanis we brought in last year. Just the first three months of this fiscal year, we've brought in 5718 on pace to be a record year. Under Trump. Now, some of this was, um, you know, the special immigrant visas that Congress grew, and I was the only one to write about it in the last year, last fiscal year's NDAA. 
These are the people that supposedly work with us from the Afghani military, private contractors, inter interpreters. So the whole purpose of being there now is just to bring in more immigrants. It's the most counterintuitive policy you can imagine. And meanwhile, we lost another soldier who was on foot patrol. See, this is what I warned about when Trump introduced this new um, policy, which he really didn't want to do. His better judgment was correct. You know, they're like, no, don't worry. The Afghani military is going to take a lead. We're not going to be in combat. Don't worry. And I was like, dude, it's the worst form of combat. By getting led into traps by these phony Afghani military where we're not in control, but we're – meaning we're not standing outside the dumpster fire, but we're not inside in combat mode. We're engaging in social engineering and nation building in a combat zone, engaging in these patrols, which are just untenable. That's the worst, most vulnerable p position to have your military in. That's what's happening. A year after they announced this mini-surge, it's a spectacular failure. We have more information in the article there. But the point is we're bringing in record numbers of Afghanis. Simultaneously, you have in Sweden cars set on fire, rioting. They won't say who it is, but it's Muslim youth, these Muslim immigrants. Do you know the country that has you know, brought in you – know, you know which – is the top sending country of Muslim immigrants to Sweden? Afghanistan. And we're, we're skyrocketing our immigration from there. Do you understand what this is going to do over time, cumulatively? See, a lot of people are like, yeah, okay, it's not going to happen in America. First of all, you're seeing it all the time in these communities. But it, it is, granted, it is still more subtle than in Europe. But, dude, do we want to wait until it becomes like that and it's too late? It might already be too late. See, in Europe, it was bad for a while, but it wasn't this bad until relatively recently. It was a ticking time bomb until the numbers reached a critical mass and it exploded. We're already we, – we're, we're growing this time bomb. Hundreds of thousands every year we're importing. You know, Sweden has become the most concentrated, the biggest – probably the biggest problem, worse than France in, by some measures with Islamic immigration. You know how many they brought in? They brought in 600,000 over the last five years. We've brought in 900,000 permanent visas, not including hundreds of thousands of you know, so-called temporary visas to Islamic countries. Now, yes, we are a bigger country. It's less populated. It's less um, condensed. But numbers matter because it doesn't take many to wreak havoc and subvert the culture. But this is where we are. So there's this perception that Trump shut off Muslim immigration. The reality is it's coasting at a record high level. Record high level. Now, I want to go through with you the travel ban country, so to speak. And you'll see there is no travel ban. And once again, people think we're getting our policies. We're not getting our policies in place. It's eliciting the blowback from the other side. But we don't have our side energized. They're getting their policies. See, what people don't understand is the baseline. People think we had a normal amount of immigration. And Trump came in and just shut it off. The reality is the opposite. We never had Muslim immigration. We started to have a trickle in the 80s and 90s, and then in response to 9-11, we're like, hey, let's double and triple Muslim immigration, and that's what we basically did. Now, just so you know, this number of 167,000 a year, um, 
just so you know, it's likely understating it. Now, not everyone who immigrate there, there's no way of tabulating how many Muslim immigrants we have. We, we don't keep track of you know that distinction. But if you look at the countries of majority Muslim, now you'll tell me, well, look, there could be some coming from some of these countries that aren't Muslim. That is true. But by the same token, we have a tremendous amount of immigration from India. It's the number two sending country, like 100,000 a year, 115,000 a year, tremendous amount. 15% of India is Muslim. I didn't include that in there. But that would be, I mean, I, I have no insight into what percentage are Muslim. Are they less or more than the national average of the Islamic population of India? I don't really have any, you know, I couldn't find anything in my research. But let's just say, you know, it's roughly the same percentage. That would be at least 15,000, 20,000 people a year. That would be adding to that. Then you have countries like Nigeria, which are almost like evenly divided between Christian and Muslim. We have a tremendous amount of immigration from Nigeria. Nigeria, a tremendous amount of student visas from Nigeria. It's in the top five, I believe. Um, I didn't count that at all. So likely the numbers are even more than that if you want to know how many Muslim immigrants we brought in. And this is what we're bringing in. So I, I tabulated 47 countries, 35 of these countries, because to me, my um, criterion was just figuring out which countries are majority Muslim. Um, but at least 35 of them, which accounts for most of the population we bring in, most of the big hitters, DHS has been designating for years as countries of, quote, special interest. This is the concept of special interest alien. So if you have someone from 35 of these countries, which again produce most of our front door immigrants, come in through our southern border, we identify them as special interest aliens. Yet through our front door, we are willingly bringing in 167,000 a year. So what about Syria, Iran, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, Libya, Chad, the countries for which we had the travel ban. So first, as you can see, most of the immigration we have is from other Muslim countries like Pakistan, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, that aren't even on the list. And we're increasing immigration from those countries, or at least coasting at a record high level. So it was only a few countries to begin with. Okay, what about those countries? So now, again, we have data from 2017. We have data from the first three years of three months of 2018, it's not completely up to date, and it could be the trajectory is changing with the implementation of his order. But all signs show not so much. So uh, country by country here, Chad and Libya, obviously, we never really had much immigration from those countries to begin with, so they weren't a big factor, but to the extent we've had it, it's it's continuing. Um you know, I mean, we've only had, what, over, uh, let's see, um, just trying to find it on my chart here, 1757, so less than 2,000 over the last uh, 17 years uh, from Chad. From Libya, we've had 6,000, so it's measurable, but, you know, from what I've seen, and I don't have all the data in this chart, I have a big master spreadsheet. <clears throat> uh, it's pretty much 
you know, more or less, we've continued. We've continued the same thing. So, you know, Chad, I know he officially took off the list anyway because they do have a government and they were cooperating. Libya doesn't have any government, but why we're taking any immigrants, I don't know. Okay, then there's Somalia. Now, Somalia, you know, we've taken in over 100,000 immigrants since the early 90s, since the, you know, the country disintegrated in, in, in 1992. And, you know, it's it's kind of stagnated between three and 7,000 with some years in the 90s being 10,000 a year. Tremendous amount, tremendous amount. It's destroying our country. Um, <clears throat> you know, and last year under Trump's helm, we took in a record 7,417. Now, some of that Obama did front load and it was in the pipeline and he didn't like shut it down in the pipeline. So a lot of that is because 2016 was Obama's record year. But you look at this year and we're really on pace for, for, for more of the same. In fact, in the first quarter alone, we brought in, um, what is this? Roughly 2,000 Somalis were given green cards. That would be a pace of 10,000 for a year. That would be a record. Now, if you look in, if you peek into the numbers, mo- the majority of that is um, adjustments of status. So these are not, just to be accurate here, this is not you know new people we brought in. It's a number of people we gave green cards. Some of that means people initially <coughs> brought in on a temporary visa. They were already here on a temporary visa. They were upgraded to a green card. And some were initial new arrivals that were granted green cards right away to come in. So... Yeah, most of them were adjustments of status, and you would expect those numbers to go down and that this is really a continuation of Obama's record baseline. But again, there still were a healthy number of new arrivals. It wasn't completely shut off, even from Somalia, which I thought we were going to do that. Yemen, similar story. Um, You know, 4,000 green cards. We're on pace for 4,000 green cards this year to Yemeni nationals. What the heck? Syria is a similar story. You know, and I'm not, I'm not seeing any downtick from Syria. Iran, we're coasting at about a pace of 13, 14,000 a year. Roughly in line with the record high baseline we've been taking in recent years. And, and most of those actually are new arrivals, from what I can see. And then immigration from Sudan <clears throat> is, is, has actually increased. Because of what's going on there. Sudan, South Sudan, it's mainly from Sudan we're taking in. I mean, folks, this is a this is a lot of people. I mean, if only a small percentage would subscribe to Sharia, it would be a problem. And it's a lot more than that. This is what we're doing. You know, if you juxtapose our foreign policy, our military policy. To immigration counterterrorism, it would be the equivalent of having you know a group of enemies stashed in a cave, and you have two options. One is you could totally, for for almost nothing, take care of the plot problem by drop dropping bunker buster bombs on them and killing them all, or you could send your people in single file one by one into their rat's nest to to fight them. Okay, but it's worse than that. Then after you get your guys slaughtered, the remaining people, you go and bring those people into your nest while you're sleeping and, und- and un- unarmed 
while they're armed. That's what we're doing. And, and I, I cannot underscore enough how it's a problem of immigration. And I go through these categories in my piece. It's front door immigration that we're just totally bringing in our front door. Then there's the back door, the increase in special interest aliens through our border that all has to do with the Latin American migration because that is what's being used to distract the border agents. If you didn't have that, it would be much harder for them to get in the Middle Easterners. And I'm, I'm going to have a lot more on that in the coming days and weeks. Our, our uh, Latin American expert here at the Conservative Conscience, Joseph Humeyer, has a, a whole story I'm going to talk to him about today with a bunch of Middle Easterners flooding Guatemala. That is the transit point. That is the point that you got to stop then. And the Guatemalan government is actually good. If you remember, the Guatemalan president moved the, their, Israel, their Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. So he's a good guy. He's working with us. But Soros is actually down there, has groups fomenting insurrection opposition to this guy. A lot of stuff going on there. But this is a border issue. It's an immigration issue, and it's a terror financing issue. So it's it's an immigration, you know, what tools do you need? You need, you know, anti-immigration. It doesn't cost you anything. You just don't let them in. For a frat, and then once they're here... You have the subversion networks, not in Afghanistan. They're on our soil where they use drugs and contraband and all sorts of things to fund the terrorism. If we would spend a fraction of the money that we spend refereeing Islamic civil wars there and and use it for counterterrorism on our own soil to bust up the financing, which is really the source of the problem – a, you have no problem. B, you don't lose any lives. And C, you could do it for a lot cheaper, and you're actually redressing the issue. You know, my buddy Derek Maltz, he's he's uh, getting a lot more notoriety. We were the first to have him on, former head of DEA Special Ops. He, um, <clears throat> he was quoted in the Daily Caller, and he, he told this to me privately, that he actually warned Bruce Orr, you know, the guy whose wife was uh, – um, worked for Fusion GPS while he was working on the Hillary investigation, and then eventually the the Trump investigation, the 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 you know the Russia stuff. So Bruce Orr was Associate Attorney General, number three guy in the Department of Justice. He warned him as as DA Special Ops head. He said, "Do you understand? There's 300 Shiite immigrant-owned businesses in this country that are involved, likely involved in funding terror. That they're fronts." For funding terror. <clears throat> and then you have the drugs. I mean, as I'm talking to you now, I see The Hill, which has become a left-wing rag, puts out this thing. CDC has new numbers, record high deaths for opioids. It's not prescription opioids. Prescription deaths are down. The fastest growing is actually cocaine and meth, which they're not even opioids. They're all brought in by the Mexican drug cartels. But the biggest opioids are heroin and fentanyl. They're also brought in and distributed by um, the Mexican drug cartels, even though most of the fentanyl is manufactured in China. But then you have, like I've been warning you, and we're going to have Derek on our show again to discuss this, the synthetic marijuana, the K2 spice, sold exclusively out of Yemeni-owned mini-marts and bodegas and delis that are poisoning hundreds of people with rat poison and the tens of millions of dollars going back to Yemen, and we're bringing in! 
we brought in 60,964 Yemenis since 9-11. And yet we have our troops refereeing fighting the Houthis while fighting Al-Qaeda, while Al-Qaeda is fighting the Houthis, while supporting the Saudi-backed government that has ties to Al-Qaeda in there, but then we bring in the Yemenis. We have our troops on the ground doing God knows what in Somalia, but then we bring in over 100,000 Somalis, and now they're funding through this daycare fraud, they're funding terror, and now they're electing uh, representatives. (sighs) It's insane. We live in a mad world. It's completely backwards. This is the linchpin to our problems. Imagine if we didn't have these heavy-handed, insane wars. You know, if we just tried what I'm saying for a minute, focused on a Monroe Doctrine, so focused a very strong stick approach to Latin America, fought Hezbollah, which is a much bigger problem because they're the pipeline to bringing in all these people through our border, closed off your front border, which doesn't cost you anything, worked on counter-terror financing in America, busted up the Muslim Brotherhood networks in America, Then come back to me if there's a need or desire to do much of anything in these Sunni countries overseas, and then we'd save hundreds of billions of dollars. It's the linchpin to the budget because then we wouldn't be held hostage because the military spending with increasing non-defense discretionary spending. And then we'd actually have money to spend on building our nuclear deterrent and other conventional deterrents for the true threats, which are China, North Korea, and Russia and Iran. But these Sunni terrorist groups and these Sunni terrorist countries, they can't do us. They can't do anything to us. They can't do anything to us in Afghanistan. Afghanistan's a nothing. They can't do anything to us if we don't let them in, which we did on 9 11. There's nothing to do with going to Afghanistan and having a war. That was the mistake. You know, it, it, it's like. Um, Again, I, I use this analogy before, but it's very apt to what we're talking about. You know, I live in suburban Baltimore, so it would be the equivalent of during the big riots here in Baltimore, um, me hanging up signs downtown and saying, please come to my home. Please come. Here's the address. Here's the place. I'm going to let you in, um, and, and here it is. And then um, – you know, they come to my home, my neighborhood, God forbid, and ravage and do all sorts of bad stuff. And then in my pain and anguish, as a response, I, I need to respond, I go downtown and try to have hand-to-hand combat over dilapidated row houses um, and take action that every one of my actions either strengthens the Bloods or the Crips, which operate in Baltimore as they do in many cities. That, that, that's the equivalent of what we're doing. It was like, dude, 9-11 was very painful, but you, you self-immolated. The lesson was, uh, stop doing that. Take the signs down. Move. I mean, in, in my case, in our case, you don't need to move. We have great natural barriers. You just enforce them, and then you don't, through your front door visa policy, bring them in. It's that simple. This is the biggest thing lost. It affects our entire foreign policy, our entire budget. This is the linchpin to everything. 
Yeah, we go there and we bring the people in. I, I just, I don't understand it. I'm just typing here. Um, it's just insane. Totally insane. This opioid thing. Unbelievable. I don't know, folks. I'm going to blow a gasket here. So, um, you know, pro probably better we call it a day here because I'm just so pissed. But this is the problem. We have... It's not our policies, if you truly are a conservative, that are being implemented. It has nothing to do with whether you're for or against Trump or how much you like him or dislike him. Until we get a movement focused on changing primaries, electing better people, getting a new party, getting a new movement, getting smart and focused and on message on the right issues and the linchpins of the strategies that actually affect the outcome of those issues, we're going to continue rotting as a nation. Except the only difference is, when you have Republicans in power, we're going to ironically get blamed for the rod. And you'll have even worse people get elected. Which is what we're facing now. And by the way, one other just quick note here, in terms of policies. You know, other policies being implemented. CBO just downgraded our growth potential, our projected growth, um, GDP growth for the remainder of the year. You know what they said? Because of the extra spending, extra debt, and higher interest rates, it's going to mitigate growth. This is the thesis we've been working with for months here. And, uh, you know, obviously it was proven there. So we're going to be watching a couple more issues we're going to be watching throughout the week. The West Virginia impeachment of its every single Supreme Court justice. They are great news. It's the one good piece of news. There's a lot to learn from that. Um, also... Obviously, we're going to follow, as always, our immigration news. But one of the things to watch for is this Guatemala story and the linchpin of Latin American migration and these Middle Easterners coming in. And then the drug stuff. I mean, the Senate is officially back in session today, and one of the things they're focusing on is opioid legislation. Could you imagine that? It's a national security issue. It's like I come to a doctor for a migraine and you amputate my toe. Like big headlines, 72,000 people died of opioid of of opioid uh, or drug overdose, most of it opioid um in 2017. First of all, there's nothing new. I mean, we've been reporting, they've had this preliminary data out for a few months. I don't know why the media finally caught on to it. The New York Times has an article. The Hill has an article out. Um, and they're, they're going to spend all this money dealing with prescription. Prescription deaths are down. Illicit drug deaths are skyrocketing. And a lot of it has nothing to do with addiction, but it's just straight-up poisoning. That's being – that's you know, it's either funding the Mexican cartels, which are just as bad as the terrorists, or Islamic terrorism, all through immigration subversion. Folks, we got to stay focused. I need you guys to stay focused on the right issues. I hope you learned a lot from today. I hope you took your blood pressure medication as well. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.